Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Welcome in to Legal Face Off, the first episode of May here on WGN Radio, WGNRadio.com. The Legal Eagles are here. Rich Linkoff, Tina Martini. My name is Sam Panianovich. Thanks to Ben Anderson, per usual, for making everything work behind the scenes. I was told to bring my own margarita. Wow, Mayo! I don't know. I don't know where yours are, but that's a different. Got a bottle of tequila over there. I know, (laughs) Tina. If anybody has a bottle of tequila, I know you do. You love tequila. I've got about ten of them. And Rich with the Expos jersey on today, the Montreal Expos jersey. So this is timely because we're covering uh, the baseball rule here in a second, and also because Pete Rose has been on the news lately. So representing the Expos always. And plus, by the way, one of our guests. One of our guests in the grab bag is a uh, former Expos broadcaster, so it's all it's all relevant. There's a lot to get to, per usual, on the show, and we'll start inside our state boundary in Illinois here, where a U.S. district judge has ruled that J.B. Pritzker, the governor, and his stay-at-home order is constitutional. And to talk more about this, he's a professor, adjunct professor, University of Illinois College of Law, covering constitutional law and policy, and he spent almost 35 years at Winston and Strawn. He's Professor Scott Zala. Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Professor, you are the man when it comes to uh, the Illinois Constitution. So we've seen in the last week alone three challenges to Governor Pritzker's authority to enforce lockdown orders. And just over the weekend, uh, as Sam mentioned, a federal court judge issued a or rejected a temporary restraining order that was uh, filed by a church in downstate Illinois. The church alleged that Governor Pritzker was infringing on their constitutional rights of assembly and religious practice. Um, The judge disagreed and said that because the stay-at-home order allows for things like um, in-person services up to 10 people and drive-in services and also online services, that the order by Pritzker was constitutional. So where does this leave us now in terms of Governor Pritzker's authority to enforce uh, these stay-at-home orders? Well, to start, uh, the governor has the authority as it sits right now. You properly note the three lawsuits that are pending in Illinois courts, two on the state court system, one on the federal court system. The, the interesting wrinkle that exists here is the downstate uh, lawsuit brought by Representative Bailey, in which he obtained a temporary restraining order by the Clay County Court Then, after the state had petitioned to have the Illinois Supreme Court to take the case, uh, Representative Bailey's attorneys then uh, moved to vacate the temporary restraining order, uh, apparently uh, wanting to not have the Illinois Supreme Court uh, look at this case and review the case. The interesting wrinkle to this is thereafter, the uh, Attorney General's office on behalf of the state filed a motion to still have the court review the case uh, under its supervisory powers under under a particular Illinois Supreme Court rule. And they have filed a uh, a very detailed motion citing substantial case law where the Illinois Supreme Court has the authority to effectively reach down even if a case is apparently moot from the TRO standpoint as exists in the Clay County but citing to the Cabello case in Winnebago County, as well as the uh, Western Division of the Northern District of Illinois case uh, with the church. Uh, They attached a copy of the opinion from Judge Lee 
in the Northern District Western Division case. And so as it stands right now, is it's waiting to see whether or not the Illinois Supreme Court will in fact take the case. And if so, if they do, then there will have to be briefs raised by uh, representatives uh, 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 Bailey, potentially Cabello, and uh, they can't take the federal court case, of course, but a decision could come down that would certainly have the impact from that standpoint. Judge Lee's opinion in the federal court case was very strong and gave substantial rights to uh, the governor in this regard. So uh, it's something that uh, we should certainly see more in the future. One thing uh, Governor Pritzker raises in the briefs is the fact that there might be other lawsuits coming down the road. And therefore, that's the reason the Supreme Court needs to take the case and review it so we don't have conflicting decisions that might take place. So, Professor, what, what is the likelihood of any of these cases ultimately going to the U.S. Supreme Court, given that we're seeing a number of similar suits across the country? Well, normally the case law, uh, in order to get to the Supreme Court, you need a violation of a federal statute or a federal cause of action. There are a limited number of state cases that come up. And there is a First Amendment issue here, but Governor Pritzker with the modified order allowed for up to 10 people at, at church facilities or religious uh, services. So I don't think there's uh, a likelihood that this case would go to the Illinois Supreme Court or to the U.S. Supreme Court. I did hear, however, that um, the Attorney General of the United States, William Barr, has said that it's possible that uh, the Attorney General's office on the federal side could weigh in on a matter. I don't know if they would weigh in uh, on the Illinois cases. Uh, more likely, they would find a forum that, that might be uh, better from their standpoint. So um, I, I just don't think the quick answer is, Tina, I don't think it's likely that it will go to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Illinois Supreme Court would be the most likely stop on this issue. Amanda Vidicki joining us from WTTW. We know you're all over these stories and very much in demand as a Springfield expert. So we appreciate you jumping on um, Legal Face Off. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, so Amanda, you uh, have your ear to the ground in Springfield. We heard about, uh, as the professor mentioned, uh, Darren Bailey asking the court to vacate that order and now says he has some mysterious additional information that will form the basis of a new lawsuit. Give us the scoop. What's this new information that he's- Still don't know what that new information is. He's been very adamant going under continual executive orders, be following a plan in place for a flu pandemic that he says is similar and that really puts the power more in the control of local counties, public health offices. But what this new information is, I don't know. Um, I, I do think part of this was that it was an order that only applied to him. And so certainly part of this is perhaps trying to broaden it. And of course, we have that subsequent suit. I'm not sure if you covered this already. I jumped in after late after having listened to the governor's latest daily briefing on the coronavirus. But of course, the John Cabello suit that is sort of on hold, but would be expanded to a wider audience. Yeah, so Amanda, pick up, pick up with Cabello and the difference between Cabello and, and um, Bailey, and talk to us about the politics behind this, because 
you know, especially in our state, um, where you are located in our state is very much relevant. Bailey is a downstate Republican who's now running unopposed for a Senate seat. And, you know, it's interesting to note that uh, Bailey was part of a movement to kick Chicago out of Illinois. So that should give our listeners some context. Um, but, you know, by and large, Republicans in our state have not unmasked Trump behind these efforts to sue the governor. They have been vocal in, you know, for example, Bill Brady has been vocal in saying we need the legislature back in Springfield. They haven't met, I think, in about 60 days. So get us involved. This is not an imperial, you know, uh, uh, monarchy where you get to decide everything on on your own by executive order. So talk to us about all of those dynamics. So, yeah, there, there certainly are a lot of dynamics at play. And to jump off where you left off, one being that the Democratic leaders of the General Assembly have really been quiet, considering this is a global pandemic that is wreaking havoc on the state's economy and what would have otherwise been presumably a busy legislative session. And with an election coming up on the horizon, we can't forget that. They've been really quiet, haven't said when the General Assembly is going to come back. Will that be May when typically we would be in the midst of trying to get a budget in place? Will that not be until June? We don't know. They really are the ones who can call the General Assembly back or the governor could. He could say, I want to call a special session. Thus far, he has avoided doing that, saying it's up to the legislature. But that's, I think, where you're hearing very frustrated Republicans. Although the governor, as he has just now unveiled a plan for reopening the economy, the five-point plan that would give regional reopenings based on a variety of metrics having to do with hospital space, testing and such, um, this is something that, as you noted, is a, a regional issue. And so he's taking that into account. He certainly says that he has spoken with legislators, but there's been widespread frustration from Republicans across the board, be they from the suburbs where they tend to be um, less conservative or downstate Republicans like Representative Bailey, uh, Representative John Cabello isn't from downstate per se, he's actually north of Chicago from the Rockford area, but nonetheless was a delegate for President Donald Trump and continues to be a big supporter of the president. So you're, you're seeing some of that regional divide come into play. And I think that is part of these lawsuits. That's why you haven't seen Republicans from the suburbs jump on board. Uh, many of their constituents are okay with the stay-at-home orders as they are maybe Nobody likes it, of course, but perhaps more understanding of what it is versus in other parts of Illinois where you're just not seeing that same sort of caseload in hospitals and generally a different political political philosophy is at play. So um, Cabello's lawsuit, to be clear, some main differences is that it wouldn't apply just to him. It would be to all of Illinois. He is suing sort of a class action you can think of it as that. And then also it, it's not on the same very quick timeline that Bailey's was in that Bailey thought to rush this, said that time is of the essence. And Cabello said that he's waiting for the governor to do more. And so by the time the courts would hear it, it would be really too late for it to matter, at least for the month of May. Last question, Professor. We only have a minute left on legal face-off. And I know this is not a minute type of answer. So I'll ask you to really condense it for our listeners. But there's never been a global pandemic like this, so it hasn't been challenged in the court. But ultimately, how do you think the courts will view the governor's executive powers to enforce lockdowns in the face of all this opposition? I think that they will uphold the governor's powers 
Um, he not only has constitutional powers under Article 5 of the Illinois Constitution, but the Illinois Emergency uh, Management Act, Section 7, uh, allows him to issue uh, declarations of disasters. And uh, uh, Illinois governors from Governor Quinn, Governor um, Rahner, as well as Governor Pritzker before then, have issued successive proclamations. And therefore, I believe that the Supreme Court will ultimately uphold it. He is adjunct professor Scott Zala, University of Illinois College of Law. Thank you, sir, for joining us. And always good to see the smiling Amanda Vinicky, WTTW-TV, Chicago Tonight. Thank you, Amanda. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. You can always rate review after you listen to our show, Legal Face Off on WGN, WGNRadio.com. Joining us now to talk about the Cubs and Major League Baseball being sued by a fan who was hit by a foul ball, Nathaniel Groh, Associate Professor, Indiana University at the Kelly School of Business. Professor, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're lucky to have you. You're, you're the foremost expert, I think, on, on this issue, so it's great to have you on. Uh, as Sam mentioned, a woman who is attending a Cubs-Mets game at Wrigley Fields has filed a lawsuit last week uh, against the Cubs in Major League Baseball as a result of getting um, her face injured from a foul ball that went into the stands a couple of years ago. The baseball rule uh, for over a century has protected baseball teams and Major League Baseball from liability for such fan events, fan injuries. Do you think the baseball rules still make sense in the current era of bigger, stronger, faster baseball players? Yeah, so it's a good question. I think that um, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I think courts are traditionally interpreted really narrowly. Um, so that as long as a team had netting up behind home plate, that that's all that they had to do. And after that, if somebody got hurt, they were, the team was legally protected. You know, I think over the last few years, you've seen major league baseball take steps to increase the netting further and further down the foul lines. So I think that if major league baseball is saying that there's more areas that need to be protected beyond those just behind home plate, that courts should probably adapt to that. Well, that means that, you know, the team should be automatically liable anytime anyone gets injured by a foul ball. I don't know if I would go that far, but I definitely think the courts need to try to update the, the rule to, uh, to meet with the new circumstances that the teams are uh, facing. So, Professor, this plaintiff, as many others have, alleges that these lawsuits should at least go to the jury to decide because there are more distractions than ever, including cell phones. Do you think that's a compelling argument? 
Um, I do at some level. Yeah, I think that there's definitely way it's definitely more dangerous today than it used to be for a variety of reasons. The distractions, you know, being up there, you know, is one of the most important reasons um, there in Illinois. There's some potential obstacles. Um, there's a statute that typically protects teams in these circumstances and stuff like that. So I don't know if legally it'll be the strongest argument, but I think, you know, atmospherically, you know, kind of PR wise, it definitely helps make the case. Professor, in addition to the liability argument, you wrote um, a very highly regarded and influential article in the William and Mary Law Review entitled The uh, Faulty Law and Economics of the Baseball Rule. Uh, I think we've talked about the liability arguments. Can you talk to us about why the baseball rule no longer makes sense, in your opinion, from an economic perspective? Sure. So, um, yeah, so in the in the article, we basically looked at it, what we, we kind of tried to do this hypothetical thought experiment. Okay, so let's say that the baseball rule doesn't exist, right? And the teams have more liability here. What would they likely do? How could we best protect fans? And, you know, I am kind of, uh, you know, sympathetic at some level to those fans who say, I want to be able to catch a foul ball. I don't want to be totally screened in, you know, all the way around. And so ultimately, I think that if you increase the liability on teams to some extent, then they would be in a position to say, well, economically, what's going to make the most sense? How much money are we going to lose in ticket sales and ticket prices if we have more protection? How much is our insurance, our premises liability insurance going to go up if we don't protect fans? I think that these are, you know, economically sophisticated businesses that could make the best determination. You know, to the sake that people trust the market to kind of figure things out in the most efficient, optimal manner, then there's an argument to be made that just, you know, increasing the liability for teams and then letting them figure out, do we want to rely on insurance for this or do we want to provide more netting and potentially reduce ticket sales? You know, that's something that these teams are well equipped to, uh, to figure out on their own, I think. So, Professor, when do you think baseball will be back and in what capacity? That's a good question. Uh, yeah, so I not uh, MLB this, definitely in this country, not in Korea, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking about right here. In America, yeah. Um, MLB definitely seems to be optimistic that they can restart it. I think that the more you kind of read about, like, you know, uh, doctors and the health experts saying what would actually have to happen. I, you know, I keep going back and forth because you say, oh, MLB is confident they're going to reopen by 4th of July. And then you start reading doctors saying there's no way that that's really going to happen. My gut tells me they'll figure out a way to get it done, that there's enough money and interest at stake. But um, I, I think that 4th of July date does make some sense for a variety of reasons. I think that would be terrific. I'd love to do that if it's 4th of July. I think a lot of people would be excited to be able to watch something that isn't pre-taped and pre-recorded at some point. So, uh, yeah, I think there would be a lot of, I think it would be good. I think that MLB realizes it would be really good for the game if they're the first ones back and, if you know, get some more fan attention and potentially, you know, connect with younger fans and all that. I just want a whole section by, you know, entirely to myself, which will not be that dissimilar from a Expos game at the end of their, <laughs> in their history, right, so. I just want the White Sox to be good. The White Sox finally get good, Professor, and then the pandemic happens. So that's just the way it goes sometimes. Nathaniel Groh, Associate Professor, Indiana University, Kelly School of Business. Thanks for your time. 
Thank you for having me. It was fun. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Welcome back to Legal Faceoff here. It's the Zoom edition per usual until we figure out what we're going to do down the road. Rich Lankoff, Tina Martini. My name is Sam Paniano. Joining us now on the phones is Robert Blott, partner at Taft Law, handles Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, and you can find more at TaftLaw.com. Robert, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So, Rob, the movie Dark Waters, which was released a number of months ago, and your book, Exposure, Poisoned Water, Corporate Greed, and One Lawyer's 20-Year Battle Against DuPont, are about the class action lawsuit you filed against DuPont, which lasted for about 20 years and settled several years ago back in 2017. The story begins in 1998, when Wilbur Tennant, a Parkersburg, West Virginia farmer, asked you for help after hundreds of his cattle developed various health ailments and died, which he attributed to contaminated water. At the time, you were a corporate defense attorney and your practice was focused on representing companies like DuPont. Can you please explain to our listeners why you decided to take on this case, notwithstanding what your professional experience had been up until that point? Well, you know, when I got the call from Mr. Tennant in 1998 in my office, um, I was about to hang up uh, because when he started telling me about cows dying on his property, it was not the kind of thing that I typically handled. Uh, But he made a reference to the fact that he had gotten my name from my grandmother. Um, And so I paid a little closer attention. And it turned out that um, he was actually um, living on and raising cattle on property right next to a farm. It was owned by people that were good friends with my mom's family, my grandmother, my entire mom's family had grown up outside of Parkersburg. And that happened to be where this gentleman was having his problems. And, you know, I was in the, my dad was in the military. So we moved around a lot as a kid, but I always kind of viewed Parkersburg as my hometown. That's where we spent a lot of holidays, vacations. So when he mentioned that he was from Parkersburg, he had gotten my name from my grandmother. Is this something I might be able to help him on? I said, sure, you know, least come into our offices, bring whatever you've got. We'll take a look and see if we can help you. And, um, you know, once we saw what he had, that was it was something that really seemed like it was a pretty straightforward problem. You could see white foaming water coming out of a landfill. These animals were standing in drinking. You could see their teeth turning black, getting tumors, wasting away. So when we looked at all these videotapes and photographs, it seemed like something hey, we, you should be able to help them. It's the kind of thing I do. I help companies get permits for landfills like this. So I, should, I thought we'd be able to help him out. This would be a rather straightforward, easy matter. And it turned into being something a, a lot more complicated than that. Rob, the movie's excellent. I watched it a few weeks ago. Um, really compelling drama. You know, um, sometimes uh, stories about what we do as lawyers isn't the most compelling um, you know, thing, but the movie really does an excellent job telling the story. And I know it, it really uh, went into some detail to make sure that the accuracies of the story were captured. I know, for example, most of it was filmed in and around Cincinnati um, and some, you know, right in your, in your law office, which was really compelling. 
talk to us about the challenges of taking this really broad story and this really involved lawsuit and distilling it into something that is not only interesting, but could that, you know, be told within the confines of a two hour movie. Sure. You know, it was a fascinating process for me um, to actually observe how all of this worked and how it was made into a movie. You know, it was in 2016 and an article had come out in the New York Times magazine that had really provided one of the first really comprehensive histories of what had happened here. Um, And I actually got a call from Mark Ruffalo, uh, who had read the magazine article, and he had been pretty active in the the water space and had been, you know, really involved in environmental issues for a long time and was really shocked that something like this had been going on and he'd never heard of it. You know, and this isn't an old story. This is something that had been going on during current times, during our lifetimes, and it really had gone completely unreported by, by most of the media. And this was something that was impacting not just a small town in West Virginia, but really um, was contamination all over the planet at that point. So he was really looking for a way to help bring that story out. And I was still convinced this was a massive public health threat that was going unaddressed. So, you know, we really wanted to make sure, though, that if this was done this into a movie, that we were going to do it the right way with the right group of people who were interested in doing it for the right reasons. You know, to get this story out in a way that would help educate people, help it, uh, explain how did this happen? You know, how is it that this something like this can happen in the United States? What led to this? And really, what was the impact on the real people, you know, that were involved, not just the lawyers, but the families out in West Virginia, the people that had to go through this 20-year ordeal. So, we, you know, Mark Ruffalo teamed up with the folks at Participant, with director Todd Haynes. They just did a fantastic job in really taking a pretty complex story, you know, that spans 20 years and putting it into a two hour, um, a two hour film that really does a great job, I think, in highlighting what, what happened, what, what happened, not only just from the personal standpoint of the people involved, but also legally, you know, and scientifically, it's a pretty complex story. And I had the great um, fortune of being able to help consult with them as well. You know, those of us who are lawyers, you know, you watch movies and oftentimes you get really frustrated, you know, to, to watch courtroom scenes that just aren't the way things really happen. You know, so I was happy to be able to at least help advise and consult, you know, how the depositions work, how do the court processes work to make sure we stuck and stayed as accurate and as faithful to the true events and the true to true processes as we could. I think they did a great job with it. So, Rob, um, the case ultimately settled in 2017 for 671 million, and understandably, Dupont, as part of that, did not admit to any wrongdoing. They also claimed that there were some mischaracterizations in the movie. What is their side of of the story here, and you know, what is your response to that? Well, you know, we were able to reach a, a global settlement of a the 3,500 or so cases that were pending at that time, back in 2017. There have actually been additional people diagnosed with these diseases since that time. More cases have been brought, and about 40 or 50 more cases are now pending. Those are now going to trial as well, by the way. DuPont, even though they settled the first 3,500, are choosing to fight every one of the new cases. Um, You know, I've, I've seen the comments that you allude to, um, and I'll tell you, that's one of the main reasons why we wanted to make sure the film was as accurate as possible with the true facts 
And one of the main reasons I wanted to make sure I did the book, Exposure, um, to make sure all of the actual facts, the history of this entire story is out there. It is available for people. If people want to research what was, the, what was all of the detail and the background about all of this, that's out there and available to folks. And I think it's pretty obvious to whoever goes and looks for the facts where the real facts are and who's telling the truth here. Rob, I know you've got three children. I'm sure they're, they're relatively uh, grown, but the most compelling question I have is, uh, how did your kids feel about their parents being depicted on a big screen by Catwoman and by the Incredible Hulk? I mean, what? that's every kid's uh, dream, right? I'm sure, you, I'm sure you felt that they looked exactly like, like you and your wife, right? <laughs> well, you know, that, uh, I, my, my three sons are now, I've got two of them there in their, in their uh, early 20s and one who's 18. They're all three in college right now here in Cincinnati. They're all actually at home right now oh, uh, in the current situation. But, you know, it, it takes a lot. Uh, those of you who are parents of teenage boys know it takes a lot to impress teenage sons. And I, I still remember the day I came home after learning that um, Anne Hathaway was going to be cast as my wife. And I was explaining that to, the, to my boys and they looked at each other and they said, <laughs> wait a minute. So, so dad's going to be played by the Hulk and mom's Catwoman. That, they were impressed by that. <laughs> so one of the few times. That's awesome stuff. Robert Bellotti is a partner at Tap Law. The book is called Exposure from Simon & Schuster. And of course, the film Dark Waters. He's a partner at Tap Law out of Cincinnati. Taplaw.com for more information. Mr. Bellotti, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure being here. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. Legal grab bag time as we wrap it up here, the final edition of our Cinco de Mayo show. Rich Lenkoff, Tina Martini, thanks to Ben Anderson, Emily Flores, per usual. My name is Sam Panianovich. And joining us on the show today, two guests per usual in the grab bag. First, he's a columnist and blogger for Montreal's largest weekly newspaper, The Suburban. He is Mike Cohen. Mr. Cohen, welcome. It's an honor and a pleasure to be with you today. We'll see about that at the end of the show. We'll see if you still feel the same way. And returning to Legal Faceoff, you know or you love her from WGN Radio, the host of WGN Radio Theater, Lisa Wolf. Lisa, welcome back. Hi, I'm 
honored to be here as well. So thank you for asking me back. I guess I didn't like screw up too badly the first time. No, not at all. So we start <laughs> seven topics. We start with number one, of course, Tina, and this one involves the women's soccer lawsuit about equal pay. Yes. So last week, um, the women's soccer team's claims as they relate to equal pay against the United States Soccer Federation were dismissed. Um, what's interesting is that this was obviously the crux of the lawsuit. Um, the remainder of the claims are left intact, and those relate to equal treatment um, of the women players as they relate to travel, training, housing, and other areas. That trial is set for June 16. The spokeswoman, the spokeswoman for the women's team has said that they are pretty shocked by this result and that they are going to appeal the decision. Um, I think the hope is, at least as far as the U.S. Soccer Federation is, that there will be some type of settlement reached. But this case has gotten a lot of press. Um, I fully expect that the equal pay claim is going to be appealed and it'll be interesting to watch as this um, trial starts in, a, in about a month. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in this case from a legal perspective. It's really interesting because the judge, the federal judge in LA um, dismissed two counts but kept the one count alive. But the two counts they dismissed were really the important ones dealing with equal pay. And the, of course, the women have alleged, of course, that they have been treated differently than the men's teams. The judge pointed out a couple things, however, that in actuality, the women make more than the men in many respects. Um, you know, the women's uh, soccer team is far more well-known and famous than the men's team. I mean, I can't name, you know, any men's U.S. soccer player, but you could probably name four or five over the last 20 years uh, who have played for the women's team. The other thing is the judge basically said they have very different uh, um, compensation structures, and that's really what the judge honed in on in his, in his decision, he said that this is basically a collective bargaining situation. And because there's a CBA, a collective bargaining agreement in place, the women knew what they were getting into when they agreed on this, you know, to this pay structure that happens to pay them differently. And they have to live with it. Um, if they're unhappy, the judge said, with the way they bargained, they should have bargained differently. And, you know, they were sophisticated players. They were represented by counsel during a collective bargaining situation. And they can't come now and ask the court to undo it because they're unhappy with it. So in many ways, this is just a, you know, strict contract case. Uh, of course, you know, the, 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 the plaintiffs are alleging that it's far, it's a far greater consequence and will be appealing it. I think you're right. They'll probably settle it because it's a bad look for U.S. soccer. But the payday against, you know, FIFA, for example, could be a lot higher. Um, so, you know, it's interesting, but Lisa, what are your thoughts on this? And what are your thoughts in general about the idea that women should be paid equally in entertainment or sports? Does it matter if their particular sport generates more income? Because of course, an argument on behalf of, you know, the defendants are that, well, if women's sports are less popular and therefore generate less advertisers, then it's okay for them to be paid differently than men. I know that's a lot to absorb, but what are yeah. your thoughts on that? Well, coincidentally or not, um, last time I was on Legal Grab Bag was the first time that we talked about this case. There you go. So we wow. had actually had, yeah, we'd actually had, I'm like this again. No, we actually had a discussion 
just about that uh, when I was on here last time. And if the men's teams are more profitable, we brought up the you know concept of should they be paid more. The thing about this particular article that I keep going back to um, is the, the sentence that says that the women's national team has been paid more over the class period. So to me, the, the, that that's the key word that seems very vague to me. Um, more over the, was that within the last two week, two weeks? Did that you know over the last three games, or is this over the last year, over the last six months? So to me, I'm not 100% clear that what they're asking for is what we're reading about. Do you know what I'm saying? Over the, like yeah. the last two, I mean, they wouldn't be bringing up the case if this wasn't an ongoing problem, but the way this article is written is telling me over this period of time, which is not given to me, they're saying they were paid less. Whereas the women's national team is saying, well, look, you've been paid more over this particular period. And that's where I'm having some trouble because I don't think I have all of the information that I would need to answer. Mike, you've covered sports for uh, a lot of your life professionally. What are your thoughts on these type of lawsuits? It's very interesting from a Canadian perspective to, to listen to what you're saying and to hear about this story because in Canada, women's sports, except for the women's hockey team, and even that is really not on the map. And I think if this would, I, I mean, you, you tell me that you know more players on the U.S. women's team than the U.S. men's team. I don't even, frankly, as a big sports fan, I, I can't even, I don't even remember a name in my lifetime of a Canadian women's soccer player. I don't remember seeing anyone going to our big stadium to see them play. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm, uh, you know, a male chauvinist here, but uh, but I think that uh, it's, it's, it's just so interesting to hear this perspective. But I do agree with you, Rich, and that it is a collective bargaining agreement situation, and I think that's probably the way it, uh, it should be resolved. And because U.S. soccer is so high profile, it probably will. Topic number two involves online lawsuits involving universities and colleges. And of course, all of our lives now have moved online. This show is now online via Zoom. But there are some students at 26 law schools that are unimpressed, Rich, by their online classes. And I can vouch for this because I'm actually teaching class online right now. It's just not the same as it would be if you're in a classroom. Yeah, actually, uh, not just law schools, but all, you know, universities and, and you know, ver as varied universities as some Ivy League schools like Brown to University of Arizona, um, Boston University. A lot of college students are have joined a class action alleging basically that you're not getting what you paid for. They paid for a certain level of education and certain resources, right? I mean, there are people at Purdue, for example, students who are saying, I was working on an airplane in class and I'm obviously not doing that by e-learning. So I should be made whole by the university reducing the tuition, reducing the cost or compensating me somehow. Uh, the colleges have responded that this is a global pandemic, obviously, and we're still giving you the benefit of our teachers expertise and library services and tutoring and, and all sorts of services. Um, but, you know, I think that's a very, listen, as someone who I represent universities, so I have to say that, and I, you know, first and foremost, am an, ad, am an advocate for them, but objectively being the host of the show, one of the hosts of the show, I think it's compelling to say that, you know, we're not getting even a fraction of what we bargained for when we're simply listening to a university professor talk to us by Zoom. And as the father of two kids who are getting e-learning through Zoom, 
And again, as, as good a job as the teachers are doing, it's not nearly what uh, obviously you could get sitting in, in your classroom. Yeah, I would say it's a compelling argument too, Rich. Um, but I also think, you know, I was trying to look at it from the frame of reference that it is a global pandemic. And at the end of the day, I think we're all feeling it, whether our comp gets hit or we're losing opportunities, whatever the case may be. Um, and at the end of the day, I think that what really drives a lot of the tuitions and so forth at these schools is having this access to, to professors. And I, I think it's more meaningful than like going to YouTube and you know, watching a video of one of these professors. And I think we're all just in a situation where we're all losing something, whether it's comp or whether it's the true experience that we had purchased through being a student or, or otherwise. And so I think it's a, a very slippery slope because the transactions costs associated with trying to make people whole, whatever making them whole means, whether it's in this context or otherwise, we could spend you know, 24-7 trying to make folks whole in what is just a, a horrible situation for the world right now. So, And Mike, uh, you know, Tina raised a good point that what you're really getting still as a student is access to some world-class talent. Uh, we just had a couple on our show a moment ago. Um, but the other thing that you have to realize is that at the end of the day, what a lot of people are looking for from their college experience is that, you know, title on your diploma. And if you go to Brown, uh, and you're graduating from Brown, you're still going to have Brown on your diploma. That's going to open a world of possibilities, regardless of whether you have access to, let's say, the gym, right, at Brown. So do you think that these lawsuits have merit understanding that at the end of the day, you're still going to leave this university experience with what you wanted, which was a diploma from a very prestigious university? Well, let me put on a couple of my other hats that I wear, because I'm here just wearing one of them, but I'm also the communications and marketing specialist for the largest English public school board Absolutely. in the province of Quebec. And I'm also a city councillor in the community where I live. So these questions have been coming to me, not necessarily from our university, although I've heard it because I do have a daughter who's in medical school who has not uh, unfortunately been able to get her med school training in the last seven weeks. But, uh, but I'm hearing it from parents at our public school board. And I'm also getting phone calls with my uh, suburban newspaper hat on from parents whose kids are in private school. And they're paying some very high tuition, probably the same amount that you're paying at one of these universities. And they're questioning, should I pay my fourth installment because I'm paying for a Zoom school. And even more so, I'm hearing some people coming to me saying, you know what, I might not be able to afford to send my child to school next year. The pandemic is still going to be here. Am I going to be paying uh, you know, an excessive amount of money next year for my child to be going uh, online the entire year? Maybe I'm going to pull them out and spend my 20, instead of $20,000 and put them into the public system. So I understand where these people are coming from, but what's the alternative? The reality is, like you said, uh, Tina, we're in a, a pandemic right now. And uh, the university didn't ask for this. They're doing the best they can. And if you went back 25 years ago and this was happening, uh, then we'd be a different story. School would just be canceled. There'd be no learning whatsoever. Topic number three, Tina, I'll start with you because you're the biggest TikToker of the bunch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> TikTok and Lisa's laughing. So Lisa knows what I'm talking about. TikTok has been hit with a privacy suit over their facial recognition features. Well, if my niece is listening to the show out there, I'm sure, you know, I'm getting her attention now talking about what I think is her favorite thing in the world, TikTok. And she's quite talented with it, I must say. So Jordan, giving you props. So unfortunately for TikTok, though, they've encountered quite a bit of legal um, trouble in the last couple of years. They've 
had issues with the FTC and there was a lawsuit filed back in December. And these all seem to relate to privacy and specifically in the class action that was filed last week, um, there are allegations um, that a few minors and their guardians um, had the, the guard and, and the and the uh, and the minors in particular that they were using TikTok and without their consent, um, their facial geometry was being stored. Um, what I thought was particularly compelling and what I suspected was the case that at least 60% of TikTok users are between the ages of 16 to 24. And it's really all about um, whether or not these users are able to provide consent or even ask for their consent. Um, the biometric data is being used and there's nothing really that notifies the users about the fact that it's being collected, how it's being used, and how it's being stored. And so I think, you know, and I, I work at a firm where we do a lot of work in the digital space, for example, digital health, and there's a lot of privacy issues around that. And my guess is that we're just going to continue to see a lot of suits like this until um, safeguards are, are put in place, particularly for, for users. So it's going to be interesting to see where this case goes. My guess is that it'll be settled like the other ones. I'm trying to do that. <laughs> my daughter teaches me these TikToks. These are um, amazing. I, I can't even contort like that. I'm just too old for it, I think. Lisa, do you consent yeah. to giving up did you consent to giving up your data when you sign on on one of these social media sites? What do you think? I guess one could choose to consent if they wanted to, but like they said, you know, these are focused on kids. I can't I can't pretend that I haven't been involved in the TikTok world here. We're all home here and I've got just a, a few kids. So that's what we do, but they're not for a public consumption, obviously. It seems pretty cut and dry here. I don't think there's anybody that would feel comfortable in sacrificing the privacy rights of minors. Um, and even if they weren't minors, it's only more troubling because they're minors. And even if they weren't minors, if I suppose if you are an adult and you choose to consent to give up your privacy rights, that's up to you. Um, as long as you choose to do that, you understand the legalese involved in doing that too. Because sometimes these things are lengthy and written not for um, a typical consumer's education. And you may sign off on something you don't even realize what you're doing. Um, and kids certainly aren't going to be able to um, assume that they would be able to um, really you know, know what they're reading and sign off on it and certainly inappropriate to make those decisions on their own. It's pretty cut and dry to me. Topic number four involves a pair of celebrity divorces. Clueless star Stacey Dash is splitting from her fourth husband. I was always told third time is the charm. Apparently <laughs> not for Stacey Dash. And I am stunned. I am stunned that Jay Cutler and Kristen Cavallari didn't make it all the way through. Stunned, I tell you. I bet you are. <laughs> well, you know, we cover celebrity divorces all the time on Legal Face Off, and especially now we're just desperate to talk about anything else besides COVID. So Stacey Dash made the cut today. Um, yeah, she's married four times. The last guy was a lawyer, and uh, you know she was involved in some legal issues that we covered a few months ago. But the other celebrity divorce, as you mentioned, is our – Favorite Bears quarterback. I say that not really at all because he's no one's favorite Bear quarterback. Um, but yeah, Jay Cutler last week, uh, him and Kristen Cavallari announced on Instagram that they are splitting up. 
and uh, they have now, I guess, come to an agreement on um, custody. What was interesting to me in reading the petition for the, the, the resolution petition was, you know, when you read between the lines and some of these family law petitions, you can really tell a lot what's going on. Uh, Kristen Cavallari used the term unsafe, and she alleged that there was some marital infidelity. There was a huge dust up on uh, the show when, uh, you know, her, by the show, I mean, uh, very Cavallari, right? The reality show that Cutler appears on sometimes there were some allegations that he was having an affair with her best friend on the show. Um, and, and, and the agreement they came to with regard to custody, because she was not asking for sole custody. He was asking for joint custody. The agreement is, um, only one that you see with people who have net worth of 60 million, like is the case alleged here, they came up with an agreement where uh, it's called nesting in the family law world, where the kids would stay in the existing house and either parent would come in to stay with the kids on alternate uh, weeks. So you really have to have three houses. And she just petitioned the, uh, the court to allow her to buy a new house. So problems of the very wealthy uh, in this divorce, Mike Cohen, you're, you're a, you're Montreal's equivalent to, uh, what would we say, page six? You know, you have your pulse on all the gossip in Montreal. You I cover do. a lot of family, family law stories. What do you think on, on this? Situation? I do. Well, I mean, you know, listen, what, uh, you know, even, uh, even at busy times, we're always interested in celebrity gossip and celebrity divorces. It's always making the headlines more so now today, since we're, we're devouring every uh, piece of literature we can find and print or on the internet, or of course, uh, you know, um, on television. Um, and the thing is, it's interesting uh, because um, the media are obsessed with this. I mean, there's probably average people who have gotten divorced, um, you know, two or three or four times. I don't know any, but there probably are. Uh, but we don't pay attention to them. But you know what? Listen, uh, they're celebrities. They're making the headlines. And if I, I pray as a Canadian neighbor, I pray that Donald Trump loses the presidency. Him and uh, his beautiful wife will certainly be, uh, the, Donald will be looking for wife number four as well. And uh, God, Lord knows what's going to come out of that divorce settlement. I could only imagine. Lisa, this, that's funny. This petition was uh, filed, I think, on April 7th, the day they returned from uh, a trip to the Bahamas. Yeah. Um, we've covered with some experts on this show before how the pandemic is inevitably going to lead to one of two things, either a lot more babies with your significant other or a lot more divorces when you look at that person and realize, I'm out of here. Do you think after 10 years with uh, Jay Cutler, Kevin Lurie looked at him and realized, yeah, this is what well, we all realized in Chicago for years that I can't take you anymore. Goodbye. Um, my guess is this probably would have happened with or without a pandemic. I don't know. Um, lifestyles of the rich and famous don't seem to bode well for long-term marriages in general. Um, I don't know if that's, <laughs> couldn't say exactly why it could be due to excess money or um, attitudes um, either way, my guess is the pen, we can't blame the pandemic on everything. So. <laughs> Sam, now that Cutler's uh, free, do we, do we see him as uh, a number one uh, color guy? I mean, he, he was supposed to do that job, but then he went back to the NFL with the Dolphins, which was a disaster. But we're going to see him in the booth, right? I don't think so. I wouldn't hire him. I think the apathy is at an all-time high with Jay Cutler. I don't think he gives a damn. He's made, you know what his career salary is, by the way? It is over $120 million. Does he need the money? Does he need to dedicate the time 
to study the film for an NFL game. I know it's only one game a week, but I don't think that these networks are going to bite. And I also think him being at the table and then stepping away from the table at the very last minute, I think that sort of gave the networks a bad taste in their mouth. So I don't think he'll be in the booth. Um, Tina, I also want to add, I'm very surprised at how much Rich knows about Cutler, Cavalier, and Six. <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually kind of wondering about that, but I... He doesn't follow very Cavalier. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. He's like there. He's like living with them. I, I don't even think he on it. I think that was just coming off the top of his noggin. Uh, topic number five involves... Yeah, I wanted to say my two cents on Jacob. Oh, oh, oh yeah, we missed Tina. Sorry. Well, first of all, he's supposed to be a stay-at-home dad, so clearly $120 million is enough, right? Remember? so, And also, he's super pouty. I'm, I'm tired of looking at him. He's always like got a look on his face. Like, he does. You know, being, being tortured. He so, always looks like he needs a cigarette. He does. Or something stronger. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> or something. All right. Uh, topic five involves Disney World. Rich, this one's interesting because I, as a kid, always wanted to camp at Disney World. But <laughs> when it's abandoned, you can't exactly go there. And according to NPR, a man has been arrested for camping at the abandoned Disney World Island in Florida. Yeah, you and 42-year-old drifter Richard McGuire apparently had the same boyhood dream, but he actually fantasy. did. It. It's a fantasy, not a dream. Yeah, he, uh, he was arrested the other day for sleeping in a building on Discovery Island, which used to be called Treasure Island. Uh, he said it looked like a tropical paradise. Well, okay, you should have said so. You needed somewhere to sleep. Um, and uh, Disney World is prosecuting him, as they should. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, who wouldn't want to live at uh, Disney? It should be noted that the park, or that part of the park, has been closed since 1999. Tina, if you had to pick one place... When you look at it, the pictures are amazing. I mean, it's, it oh, looks, it looks like great. a perfect place for a Halloween party. All right, I'm gonna, let's go around the table really quickly and, and, and say if there's one place you had to camp out during a quarantine at Disney World, where would it be? Tina? I think I'd want to go to Discovery Island because it looks really kind of freaky, and I love being scared. So, I mean, did you see the pictures of this place? It yeah, looks it looks great. Lisa, where would you camp out if you could camp out at an abandoned Disney World right now? Oh, does it have to be abandoned? Well, oh, if, no. if it were abandoned, I'll, I'll, I'll stick, you know what, I'll stick to the resorts area. <laughs> I'll take the pool and the spa and just hang out at the resorts all, you know, without the, uh, the other millions who are following. Mike, where would you camp out at Disney World? Or make it even La Ronde, uh, Canada's... Uh, well, I'll, I'll stick with Disney, uh, Disney, uh, Disney in Florida for me, which I've been to many, many times in my life. I would go to Epcot and to into one of those beautiful pavilions. Okay, Sam, what do you got? Epcot's a good call. I don't want to steal Mike's thunder, so I'll just say that I would, uh, I would go sleep in Space Mountain. Ooh, <laughs> it's black. You can't see anything I'm doing, so that's the, you know that's kind of how I roll. That's a good call. <laughs> I, as a kid, I was obsessed with uh, Haunted Mansion. Uh, I have vivid memories of like being a, a five-year-old being haunted by those ghosts dancing. So I would just live in the haunted mansion for uh, for the entire quarantine. Topic number six, two to go here on the legal grab bag. The squatty potty trademark lawsuit. Tina, the dance floor is yours. Yeah, I mean, I just I love this story. So squatty potty is a toilet stool that helps you do you know what. And apparently, um, Lori Greiner from Shark Tank, she's actually one of the big investors in this. Um, Squatty Potty has filed a trademark infringement suit against Step and Go Health. So what's interesting, our listeners should definitely check these out online because 
this stool that's being sold under the squatty potty name looks very much like the step and go stool. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use our very sophisticated technology on legal <laughs> So what's going on here is that Squatty Potty claims that Step and Go, although they're calling it Step and Go, that on certain websites, they're using the phrase Squatty Toilet Potty Aid to describe what the Step and Go um, stool does. So Squatty Potty has filed a trademark infringement suit alleging that the use of this phrase by Step and Go is too close to its trademark. And they've asked not only for there to be an injunction entered, meaning that Step and Go would have to stop using this phrase, they've also asked for profits. So there are some very entertaining pictures, Rich, if you would do the honors, of showing the pictures of these people sitting on the toilet. I think it's hilarious. Um, and Squatty Potty, I've dealt with some interesting trademarks over the years, and I have to be mindful of client um, confidentiality. But Squatty Potty, I would be thrilled if that was my client. I think it's hilarious. Uh, Mike, would you be confused by these two products if you saw them in the store? That's, the, uh, that's one I, of the main questions, right, Tina? I probably yes. would be. Yeah, I probably would be. But, I mean, you know, this is uh, something that happens with so many different products and uh, yeah, it's a legal matter. Someone's going to go to court. Someone's going to win. Someone's going to lose. But yeah, I'd be confused. Lisa, are you a, uh, yeah. I don't want to get too much of the personal life of a WGN superstar like Lisa Wolf, but uh, yeah, but potty, thumbs up person. or thumbs down? Yeah, no. Shark, I'm, first of all, I'm a huge Shark Tank fan. I love Lori Grenier. Um, but most importantly, they're doing it purposely because look, it's not a coincidence. They're using the word squatty and potty, but that's not a typical term that we would use for this device. So I think it's confusing. I think it's unfair and I think they should win. Squatty well, potty a, wins. As a shark tank, uh, maven myself, I agree with you that, um, that's often the question, right? Cause they always, Mr. Wonderful always says, what's to stop anyone from knocking you off? Right. And I think more people have learned about trademarks from, from, from Shark Tank and patent law and intellectual property really than anything in history because it's so true. This is a great case, you know, an actual case where there is nothing often stopping someone from ripping off a product unless you've availed yourself of certain protections that only the almighty law allows for, Tina. So thank God for lawyers is the big takeaway. Sometimes. Thank God for IP lawyers. <laughs> Actually, go hug your back. neighborhood. Go go hug your your friendly neighborhood IP lawyer. That's when right. They are out of quarantine. And yeah, fun fact: for Lord Lightfoot might come and strike you down. <laughs> Be careful. Hey, I'm not in Chicago. I'm in Evanston. Yeah, very true. Lucky <laughs> don't forget one last fun fact with our Canadian friend Mike Cohen. Uh, Shark Tank started as a Canadian show called Dragon's, Dragon's Den. Den. That's right. And starring uh, Mr. Wonderful, who's Canadian, and of course, uh, what's his name? Who's Canadian? The other guy. Yeah, the other, you know, guy. The other one. Yeah, the other guy. Yeah. I, I don't watch it. I watch the real thing in Canada, the real show. There's uh, Robert and Mark. Robert no. Yeah, Herjavec. Robert. He is Canadian, too. Mark Cuban. Okay. We will take your word for it. Final topic, legal grad bag. If you haven't seen this, you've been living under a rock. The man on the Florida beaches that's been dressing like the Grim Reaper bouncing around, trying to make his presence felt, and getting on that news station, going viral. Uh, BuzzFeed has been all over this story. Here's the title. I read verbatim. A man dressed as the Grim Reaper is touring Florida beaches, and his interview is going viral. 
and no disrespect to Mike Cohen, but he was our first, the, the Grim Reaper lawyer was our first grab bag guest. So uh, we, we could have had you maybe dressed as the Grim Reaper. But yeah, you know, there's a lawyer in, in Florida, as you mentioned, who is going around beaches protesting Governor DeSantis's opening of beaches by dressing as the Grim Reaper and uh, getting a lot of media attention, as Sam mentioned. Uh, the, the interesting thing that I found about the video was that, you know, you want the Grim Reaper to sound like, I don't know, James Earl Jones or very intimidating. <laughs> he, sounds, he doesn't sound very intimidating at all. You know, you want, you want to hear this, like, you know, devilish voice come out of the Grim Reaper. Instead, it's a very mild-mannered sounding. Yeah, sound he's, like, timid. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm the Grim Reaper, you know. <laughs> I, I thought the video was hilarious. I you know, have you ever dressed up like a character to prove your legal points? Have I? Yes. Um... I I've never dressed up as the Grim Reaper. The biggest I, I would I would say probably the most evil um, costume I've ever worn was I was um, one of the witches in the Wizard of Oz in a play. Mm. Mike, you're in uh, public relations. You're in the media. Do you think this is an effective way for an attorney to get their message across and for people to go to the website? Right. I mean, there's we we certainly looked up his name and know his name now. Yeah, well, I certainly would have recommended he dress up as the real Grim Reaper, uh, <laughs> Stu Grimson. Stu Grimson. Ah, that's true, yeah. Yeah, that's the real Grim Reaper. Okay. But, uh, you know, really, you know what? I mean, uh, to uh, dress up, I, I agree with the Cove idiots. I mean, what's going on in Florida makes me sick to my stomach with these people on the beach, and I'm seeing it in California. But I, I wouldn't dress up as someone who uh, murders people. <laughs> so I, I think I think he could have picked uh, maybe a better. Maybe he could have picked, uh, you know, uh, Rocky, uh, Sylvester Stallone, or Somebody, uh, you know, you know, who uh, like a, someone who takes the law into their own hands, but not not a cold blooded murderer. My last question is, uh, Lisa, you seem like an expert on a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, is the Grim Reaper's tool uh, a, a scythe or is it a sickle? I can't. I don't know the difference between those two. Please help. I, us I, I couldn't. Uh, I'm definitely not an expert on the Grim Reaper's tool. Unfortunately, uh. um, I couldn't comment on that as an expert witness. Um, but I could say, as far as the Grim Reaper is concerned, because he's made such a big splash and because, as Sam said, we must be sitting under a rock if we haven't heard about him, he's obviously done exactly what he set out to do. And to that end, he's very successful in his message, period. And we'll, and we'll be the next moderator of uh, Legal Faceoff starting next week. That would Grim be awesome. Reaper. I'm in. I found my costume for next week. Sam, <laughs> is it a sickle or a scythe? A scythe. I've heard sickle, but I, you know, I don't know anything. Mm. Well, that does it for Legal Face Off here. For Mike Cohen, columnist and blogger at The Suburban, au revoir. Am I saying that right? Merci beaucoup. Ah, I knew I was saying it right. I've been practicing all night. That's awesome. And of course, Lisa, man. you better listen to WGN Radio Theater Saturdays at 10 p.m. WGN Radio 720, WGNRadio.com with Carl Amari. Lisa, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me. Great to be here. For Rich and Tina and Emily and Ben, my name is Sam. Go Expos, and we'll talk to you next time on Legal Face Off. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab, so hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone, and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.